And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. It's a very fall day. There's snow on the ground, but there's still some, like, dead leaves hanging off trees, and it's bright and sunny. Is it fall or is it spring? Because I feel like we had fall for, like, four days. And then we had winter for like three days, and now it's spring. Well, see, there's still a chill in the air, and it's I think it's that crispness Mm. that says fall to me. I see. Yeah. How are you? I'm all right. Getting pretty excited about all the bonus juicy goodies, all the all the treats down at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Yes, yes, that is something I'm excited about. Um (laughs) Yeah, just keeping focused on the Halloween season and having lots of extras for our patrons, uh, including uh, music from you and stories from me and the usual weekly bonus audio. Keeping focused on that is good. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Devil Commands from 1941. Oh, we're into 41 now. Yes, this is our first film of 1941. Sweet. The Devil Commands is... A movie that happened due to contract stipulations. Okay. So Boris Karloff had found some of the best success of his career in the role of Jonathan Brewster in the Broadway play Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm -hmm. Since that play's begun, he's been away from making movies, but he owed two more films to Columbia Pictures... Uh, to complete his original contract with them. So, this movie was filmed during December of 1940, while the play was sort of on its Christmas hiatus. That's a little hectic for this guy. Yeah. um, But, I mean, I'm happy Karloff is busy. Yeah, getting work, uh, doing well, um, certainly having a big role in a Broadway show, especially a show as successful and critically acclaimed as Arsenic and Old Lace, you know, is the closest he's come to real critical success in a while. Mm-hmm. And, and respect as an actor and all that. Now, The Devil Commands uh, shares a lot in common with Karloff's earlier Columbia efforts, uh, being that it's a horror movie with Karloff as a mad scientist. But it also has several key differences. Uh, namely, there's a different crew behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, it has a literary source in... William Sloan's The Edge of Running Water. Yeah, it's hard to find information about The Edge of Running Water um, and a little bit about William Sloan himself because Sloan is more of a publisher than an author. Oh, interesting. So William Sloan lived from 1906 to 1974. What he did write was kind of fantasy, horror, science fiction, Okay. But blurred a lot of genres together. Sounds cool. He's best known for his first novel from 1937, To Walk the Night. Um, But his only other novel is Edge of Running Water, which came out two years later. Um, So it's kind of weird to say he's most well-known 
for one of the two things that are both fairly well known. Sure. <laughs> you know? It's like how George Lucas is better known for Star Wars than for Indiana Jones, but, like, those are both pretty big things. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. These two, like, they're novels, but they were, like, pulp novels, so they're fairly short, and they were collected into this omnibus in 1964 called The Rim of Morning. That collection was reissued in 2015, and Stephen King provided an introduction to it where he said that what is interesting about Sloan and his stories, what is fascinating is their complete and rather blithe disregard of genre boundaries. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so I think I think that's going to give us a little bit of an interesting film um, because we've been seeing past horror movies like not quite being sure what the horror genre is and kind of blurring boundaries a bit and this novel that The Devil Commands is based off of is already blurring and muddying those waters a little bit. So he only wrote these two novels um, he did write some one-act plays, some short stories, and he did edit together and publish two anthologies. 1953's Space, Space, Space! <laughs> and 1954's Stories for Tomorrow! <laughs> Both of which are science fiction-based. Right. But yeah, he mainly focused on publishing other people's works. He started in publishing in 1931, and after 25 years in publishing, he started his own publishing house, William Sloan Associates. And from 1955 until his death, nearly 20 years later, he was director of Rutgers University Press in New Jersey. Okay. So what is The Edge of Running Water about? Well, um, there's a mad scientist in it. Okay. <laughs> Hence why Karloff is in this movie. Yes. Um... So it's about a young psychologist named Richard Sales. He's a college professor from New York, and he's visiting a friend named Julian Blair in an isolated house in Maine. Julian's focus has remained on a weird experiment going on in the basement, um, and he's been, like, overly obsessed with this experiment since his wife Helen passed away. Mm. He hasn't been the same since Helen mm. passed away. Also living with him are his young sister-in-law named Anne and a mysterious and surly woman named Mrs. Walters. So Richard and Anne strike up a bit of a romance during his stay, um, and it turns out that Blair is working on a device to communicate with the dead. Ah, and Mrs. Walters is a medium who's kind of egging him on. Um, so that's what the novel's about. I can see why this got chosen to be turned into a, like, Columbia Karloff mad scientist movie. It really has a lot of the right ingredients. Yeah, the mad scientist with a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and then, like, there's a young, like, scientist assistant and, like, a young relative of the mad scientist who can fall in love. And there's, like, something about death and, <laughs> you know, being... A... Speaking with the dead. Yeah. Yeah. What I am kind of excited to see is, because we have this scientist doing weird experiments, 
to try to speak with the dead. So it's a very scientific or technological attempt to speak with the dead. And then we have a very spiritual attempt with the medium mm. being around. So it's, I, I would love to read this novel to see how those two things pair together. And I, I can't wait to see if they are in The Devil Commands, how the film handles it. Sure. So while all the um, previous Karloff mad scientist flicks had at least been co-written by Carl Brown, uh, this one uh, does not have his involvement. It sees his Before I Hang co-writer, Robert Hardy Andrews, uh, handle adapting Sloane's novel with the assistance of screenwriter Milton Gunsberg, who would soon abandon writing in order to work on developing the stereoscopic system that would eventually be used for uh, Buona Devil, the first feature-length 3D movie in 1951, and would spark the 50s 3D craze. Uh, Milton Gunsberg developed what was called, I believe it was called Natural Vision, uh, which was the 3D system that was in vogue in the early 50s. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a neat fun fact. Yeah, so I guess this guy had, you know, better luck doing that than as a screenwriter. Directing the film in place of Nick Grinda is Edward Dimitrik. Born in Grand Forks, British Columbia in 1908 to... He's Canadian! Yes. To Polish-Ukrainian immigrants, Dimitrik's family sort of bounced around as his father struggled for work. And during the time they lived in Los Angeles, uh, Dimitri got a job as a messenger for famous players while he was in high school. Uh, and then he sort of climbed the ranks to become a projectionist at the famous players' theaters, and then an editor at the parent company, Paramount Pictures, uh, and then had his directorial debut with 1935's The Hawk, a low-budget Western. So he just sort of... That's such an interesting career path. Climb, yeah, like climb the ranks from basically having a high school job at like a movie theater to like making it to be a director at the movie studio that owned the chain of theaters, right? From Paramount's B-movie department, he moved to directing films at Monogram, and then from there to Columbia. The Devil Commands was Dimitrik's seventh feature film in what would be a long career, including more horror movies, uh, an eventual rise to A pictures, and acclaimed film noirs like Murder My Sweet in 1944 and Crossfire in 1947, which would get Dimitrik an Academy Award nomination for Best Director. Damn! In 1947, he was one of the Hollywood Ten who refused to testify to HUAC and was sentenced to prison for contempt of Congress. Dimitrik fled to Europe, but was arrested and imprisoned when his passport ran out. He turned on the Communist Party and testified to HUAC in 1951, and resumed his Hollywood career in 1952, scoring his biggest hit with The Cane Mutiny in 1954. The Devil Commands was released on February 3rd, 1941, and today it is available on DVD in the Boris Karloff collection from Mill Creek Home Entertainment and to stream with Google Play and YouTube. Do you have to buy it on YouTube? Yes, yes, okay. it's a, a rental. Okay, but that does mean that it's on our YouTube playlist, so you can 
Check out that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. In the meantime, you are going to hear a brief musical interlude as we watch The Devil Commands from 1941, directed by Edward Dimitrik. See you on the other side, everybody. The Devil Commands you to come back after the break. It's not quite so good. I'm just saying the title. Yeah. Well, it was seven years ago today, we were listening to Scream Scene, and we had watched the film The Devil Commands from 1941, directed by Edward Dimitrik, and then I never saw it again. (laughs) Welcome back to Scream Scene, everyone. Uh, Riffin on the narration that's in this film, I did quite enjoy it, but, you know, it's fun to... Fun to goof. <laughs> I was so confused because we haven't been doing the show for seven years, so I I wasn't sure if you were in the present, like flashing back to the well, past. She's flashing back. Right. Or if you were in the like future flashing back to the present. You know what I mean? Sure. I was confused. Because like time passes in the movie. Yeah. At I, least two years. It, well, I think at least she says two years passed, and I, I wrote to my father, and he never wrote back. Right, but in the first narration, it was like seven years. Yeah, because she's reflecting back. Because like that, and night... it's five years back after the climax happened. I guess because it's seven years ago. Her mom died, or whatever. Yes. Okay. And set the film's events in motion. Right. So Anyway, so what did you think of this movie? I liked it. I thought it was surprisingly good. Yes, I also enjoyed this. It was nice to get a second horror movie on our viewing schedule. Yeah. Last week's The Devil Bat was the first horror movie after a string of not horror movies. It's good to have horror movies on your horror podcast. Yeah, but I guess the fact that they had the word devil in the titles kind of sets it up. I mean, but the devil's not in the movie, so like... (laughs) Um, So speaking of the film's events, why don't you walk us through the plot there, Sarah? For sure. So Dr. Julian Blair, who is Karloff, is doing research on brainwaves and has this theory and can prove this theory that people give off electrical energy from their brains Everyone has a unique signature, and he can measure these brain waves by using basically what looks like a helmet for deep sea divers and um, a very large rictograph. Yeah, it's it's like it's like you put on like a deep sea diving helmet that's like connected by wire to a bunch of you know electrical nonsense, and then the other end of it's like the graph that you would have for like measuring like, seismic disturbances, where it's the, like, pen that goes across and yeah. does the, like, back and forth. It's called, like, a rictograph? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a seismologist. Yeah, I, I am also not an earth doctor. So, <laughs> um, but anyways, so we, we get this established. His wife, Helen, 
uh, has, you know, had her brainwaves examined for this, just as, like, you know, your wife's right there, use her as a guinea pig, whatever. And she's tragically killed in a car accident. Now, after having Helen's brainwaves come through the machine post-mortem, basically, Blair refocuses his work into contacting the dead. He figures if she, if her brainwaves are coming from the other side, as it were, then there must be a way to correlate these brainwaves to words and get messages going through. Through the help of, um, I think, like a caretaker named Carl, um, Blair meets a charlatan medium named Mrs. Walter. And Sorry, I won't. I won't say the thing I was gonna say. Well, what, what were you going to say? That the, the like. Because it's totally valid for you to say, like, we're talking about a horror movie. It's totally valid to say, like, a charlatan medium. Because, like, what I was going to say is, like, isn't that a redundant phrase? This is where you and I differ on things, okay? (laughs) Anyways, so, you know, we get this whole, like, we see a seance, but Blair shows, like, here there's smoke and mirrors, do whatever. By the way, how did you cause, like, an electrical pulse to go through people. And she's like, I didn't do that. And he's like, oh my god. Tests her brain waves. She apparently has, like, super strong waves or something. And his idea is to use Mrs. Walters as basically... You know how in, like, lightning storms they have those big metal rods? And conductor. Use her as a conductor Mm -hmm. um, to allow this communication through the dead occur. So they hook her up, and they hook Carl up as well as kind of like a way to amplify the conductation. The signal? The signal. To amplify the signal. I worked in radio. (laughs) And this experiment goes awry and results in Carl being essentially comatose. He's mute and dumb. It gets... I think the idea is supposed to be like, because the breaker goes... And everything, like, goes dark. And I think the idea is just that, like, they... Like, her body somehow can take all this extra electrical force, but his couldn't. And now he has brain damage. So they decide to move to Maine to kind of avoid the consequences of this experiment. And also to be secluded to continue these experiments. We don't learn how they discover it, but it kind of makes sense that they start to use already dead bodies to amplify the signal, so they're stealing bodies from graveyards. Anne, who is Blair's daughter, who we have met before this, but this is just when I'm bringing her up, and her not-said-but-basically-love-interest, Richard, who we've met since the very beginning. He's Blair's assistant, but he hasn't been relevant until this particular moment. Um, anyways, Anne and Richard <laughs> come at the behest of the town's sheriff, And Blair realizes that Anne's been nearby every time he's actually successfully made a connection to Helen. So, I'm glossing over some things. Um, The local town's getting upset because their housekeeper goes missing. She really just died from getting too close to the experiment. Um, But they've covered up her murder, and the town is upset about this, and there's kind of a mob growing, and the sheriff's trying to avoid... Tensions rising. Like yeah, that. which is is why he he gets Anne and Richard to come because he thinks that maybe that'll calm down Blair or something. Mm-hmm. And also during this time, um, what tends to happen with Blair is he 
get so into the experiment and like getting so close, kind of like Icarus being like, oh, I'm, I'm almost there to the sun, like I'm almost there, um, that he ignores when someone's getting hurt or something. That's what happened with Carl, and it happens with Mrs. Walters. She actually gets electrocuted uh, right before Anne comes in. Because Blair has made this connection of Anne's around whenever I get closest, let's use Anne as the conductor. Um, he gets her in the suit and attempts to make contact with the other side just as the town's mob forms and comes to the house. Um, the connection to the other side, I guess, overloads and um, basically pulls Blair into, I guess I should have said, um, when they try to make these connections to the other side, a tornado-like thing forms on the table. I think what they're trying to go for is this is like a portal to the other side. Anyways, Blair gets sucked into the portal in the climax of the film, just as the house crumbles, then we get the last bit of Anne's narration saying that, you know, they say that my dad's spirit still haunts the grounds there. Um, there are some things that man is not meant to know about the other side, but perhaps one day, perhaps, perhaps, we will learn. The end. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on here, and I really, I really liked The Devil Commands. You know, it's it's on oh, on the whole, I think it's a cut above the previous Karloff, Columbia, Mad Scientist movies. You know, I wasn't sure about changing the crew and the director because they were doing fine work, but I feel like it completely revitalized the horror stories that Columbia was telling with the Mad Scientist. Yeah, this is almost, like, it's still a Mad Scientist movie in that there's scientific... Things. Like explanations for everything, but it's it's a lot closer to just like a gothic ghost story. It's like a modern day, you know, nineteen forties updating of a gothic ghost story. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, if it's the fact that they were able to have this literary source that they could get a better narrative from than usual, or if it's just the direction from Edward Dimitrik being basically always competent and occasionally good bordering on great throughout the movie. Like, That's I don't... impressive. Yeah, I don't think this is, you know, top-tier directing, necessarily, but I think you can tell, like, if I were to say to you, like, hey, the guy who directed this will go on to be mm -hmm. an Oscar-nominated director, I think you can see that looking at this movie. Yeah, and to clarify, when I say that this movie and the cinematography and everything was impressive. It's impressive for, like, the middle-of-the-road B-movie type films we've been seeing. Yeah, it's in not the, impressive yeah. in the way that number one movie, Jekyll and Hyde from 32, is impressive, or even um, Island of Lost Souls is impressive. Like, it's not quite there, but it's impressive for where this film is being made and what's going into it. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, when I was clarifying how I was judging it, like, even judging it against other, you know, non-horror movies of this period. You know, this is 1940, 41, so, like, we're starting to see movies, for example, like Citizen Kane isn't very far off, and stuff like that. And But you're totally right. In the... Looking at this movie in its proper context, which is as a, like, 
mid-budget Columbia B movie, we have, you know, we can judge it against others of its type, and it's impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. The cinematography um, by Alan Siegler is dark and moody, and it's often um, oppressive. Yeah. Um, and then the editing by Al Clark has effective drama and suspense and pacing. Yeah, it doesn't feel repetitive at all, and these mad scientist movies often fell into that. I We kind of alluded to this with my goof in the opening when we were coming back, um, but when the narration starts and the film opens, it's Anne saying, you know, this happened seven years ago. And then after Blair moves to Maine, she comes back in and says, you know, I, I, never saw, I didn't see my dad for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, until the night that I went to go see him. Yeah. Um, and then we get to see what happened uh, in, like, the day or two leading up to her visit. There's a lot of time that passes, and I think the use of the narration really helps to make that time passing feel natural or, I guess, believable. It just gets it across um, a little bit better than... Dissolves. Than dissolves, or, you know, I've also seen movies where, like... You see this sometimes in biopics that mm-hmm. go wrong, where, like, you know, 30 years passes in 15 minutes, and you, you can't really tell until, like, I don't know, the character's son comes into the room, and they're suddenly, like, 40, and you're like, whoa, you know, like, <laughs> um, Karloff, he's the same Karloff he's kind of been through all of these. It's the same fucking character of, like, mad scientist with a heart of gold, but... I think he's one of the things that makes that time jump work really well, too. There's a very clear delineation between Blair at the start of the movie and then Blair, you know, in the crazy old house in Maine. Um, Yeah, you can tell in his acting, but there's also, like, a makeup change where in the first part of the movie he has, like, his black hair and it's slicked back, and then in the rest of the movie it's gray and disheveled. But there's definitely a, a change in... His performance, uh-huh. which is really effective. But if we want to talk about the real acting... MVP? Yes. Mrs. Walters. Yes. Um, Fucking great. She's um, great. I So she's played by Anne Revere. Who is a descendant of Paul Revere, the American folk hero. Yeah. Um, that's the British are coming guy? Yes. Okay. We're Canadians. We don't know. Yeah, you didn't talk about her at all in the opening, so I I have some notes. I had no idea that she was going to be, like, that her character was important, and, like, just quickly glancing over, like, who she was, like, nothing immediately stood out. And then, yeah, seeing her performance, I was like, holy crap, like, she's really good. And going back and, like, looking through her again, it was like, oh, she's actually really interesting. Yeah. So I kind of want to just, like, explain who Mrs. Walters is in a bit more detail than mm-hmm. I did in this synopsis, and then go into more about Anne Revere herself. Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes Mrs. Walters cool, there's a lot, but, like, performance-wise, it's just the, like, the fact that it's this very, like, icy but powerful kind of portrayal. Yeah. So she's the villain, in case yes. you can tell that, like, by the way we're, like, fawning over her. Um, the villains, especially in horror movies, are always, like, the best characters. Um, but she's obsessive and controlling of Blair and is doing classic, classic abuser behavior. She's hiding letters from Anne, controlling who he has contact with, um, even so much as to, like, be the go-between between the maid 
and Blair. Like, incredibly controlling. Um, and it's, like, I, I, I guess I'm shocked feels too strong of a word, but I'm amazed to see a lady being a villain in this manner in 1941. She was definitely, for me, the most fascinating character in the movie. I see where you're coming from about be, like, being amazed to see like a, a woman get to be a villain like this. I feel like the reason she gets to do it is because the specific way that she's the villain is she's the bad influence on Blair. Like, this movie's called The Devil Commands, and, like, the devil does not show up and start commanding anyone in this movie. Like, if you go into this wanting Satan to be in it, he's not here. Um, so if you start trying to figure out, like, metaphorically who's the devil in this movie, it's Mrs. Walters, because she's the one who is always pushing Blair past various goalposts of unethical behavior, where, you know, Carl gets injured, and she's like, well, if you told anyone about this, the law would just stop you, so let's just go off and take this brain-dead guy with us to be our slave. And then, like, when the maid just accidentally dies because she wanders into the lab and, like, fucks around with the equipment, you know, rather than just being like, oh, yeah, she died, it was an accident, oops. She's like, she pushes him to fake it so that it looks like she died, like, on the way home, slipping off a cliff kind of thing. And she's always the one, like, pushing for greater and greater, like, immoral behavior from him. And what I found really fascinating about her is she is this sham medium, like we said, and he exposes her, not publicly, in, like, a private setting, and then she just, like, immediately throws in 100% with him, even though, like, no one else really believes his theories of communicating beyond with the dead, because if he's right, it'll be the biggest discovery in history, and I think from her business as a medium... She knows just how much people are willing to give to talk to the dead. She already had a business that was that. So it's like, well, how much more money could you make if you were actually doing it for real? But with all that being said, like, I I really wish we could have learned a bit more about what makes her tick. I really wish we could have seen a bit more of, like, what her deeper motivations and character and personality are because they're never really elucidated. Like, her her true depths never really feel explored to me. She just sort of feels like she's mostly here so that Karloff can be doing unethical evil experiments while still maintaining sympathy. And that comes back around to why I think uh, uh, she's allowed to have this juicy part in the movie is because I think the idea of the woman who corrupts the man and is the bad influence is an, you know, acceptable, traditional villain role for a woman to have. You know, Lady Macbeth, for example. Sure, yeah, I think that's a good point. The reason why I'm surprised at her being allowed to be this way is, like, we are introduced to her as, like, essentially she's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. She's conning people. Mm -hmm. And... She immediately, as soon as, like, she realizes what Blair is doing, she has, she says something like, with this you'd be able to rule the world or run the world or something, like, yeah. grand like that. And I remember thinking, like, mm, not really. But, like, she, I think she's someone who is willing to ride the coattails of someone, even if it means, like, shoving them underneath her. Yes. You know, she 
is... The Mark Zuckerberg of this situation. <laughs> I was thinking more the Justin Timberlake of, of social network, you know? No, cause, well... well I, I don't remember the guy's name. Yeah, the but Napster like... The Napster guy. Yeah, I was thinking the Mark Zuckerberg because, like, the stories that, like, Zuckerberg screws over Spider-Man... Yeah, but like So I thought it, Spider-Man was Boris Karloff. It's also implied how Zuckerberg doesn't quite know like isn't like aware of himself enough to like realize what he's doing, you know? Sure, sure. Whereas she's fully aware. She's totally willing to manipulate and do what she needs to do to get the power or money or whatever. And that's why she's so controlling of Karloff, like or sorry, of Blair. Um because there's no hints of, like, any kind of relationship beyond business mm-hmm. um, or scientific, I guess. He doesn't even realize that she's the one who's, like, running his house until, like, after she's dead. And then he's like, wait, oh, yeah, I guess she was handling my mail. <laughs> like, Yeah, because she wants to make sure that, A, we discover this thing so we actually get the fame and recognition and money and is willing to, like, push him, like, especially because we go from, like, young-looking Karloff to old-looking Karloff, and she remains the same. Yeah, yeah, they don't... It's a little bit of a succubus type of deal, where she's, like, succubus is the wrong word, but she's pushing him, and she's not expanding any of her life energy, in a way, but she's pushing him to the bone. That sort of comes across in her performance, too, because it's a very, like, reserved performance. She's very... Like, the way she talks, her mouth even just, like, barely moves when Mm -hmm. she talks. She doesn't give out, like, big emotions. She's not, you know, out here cackling up a storm. Gives the impression of someone who's very much in control. Yeah, she... It's actually kind of funny that you bring up Citizen Kane, because she really reminded me of the mom in the flashback of Citizen Kane. Sure. Yeah. So Anne Revere is the actress... And just to kind of, like, lay out who she is, because she's actually kind of a big deal and is also really cool. So she was born in 1903, and she lived till 1990, which is pretty sweet. Wow. She had her Broadway debut in 1931 and her film debut three years later. She was mainly a character actress and starred or co-starred in over 30 films between 1934 and 51, often playing maternal roles. Mm -hmm. And she played kind of this mother-type role to many famous people like Elizabeth Taylor, Gregory Peck, and Montgomery Clift, among others. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress three times, and she won for National Velvet in 1944. Okay, wow. So three years after making this. Cool. And then she kind of stopped making movies for a while between 1951 and 1970, because uh, she was a member of the Communist Party and pleaded the fifth to HIWAC and didn't come back to film until the 70s. She did do some TV movies in the 60s, um, but she only did two film industry films. Besides, like, what's the, div- what's the delineation between, like, TV movies and film movies? Theatrical films? Theatrical movies. Okay. Good <laughs> job. <laughs> you know, film industry movies? Film films? <laughs> Movie movies. Um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, she lived until 1990, and she's really cool. So I, I think I think you missed the big thing that I pulled out when oh. I looked her up. She was one of the original stars of the 1934 stage version of The Children's Hour. Okay. Do you not know that play? Nope. 
Okay, so The Children's Hour is this 1930s Broadway play that was super controversial. My school did it in uh, high school, um, so that's kind of why I know about it. But um, The Children's Hour is the story of two teachers at an all-girls boarding school. And uh, basically, like, you know, one of the girls doesn't like one of the teachers or whatever, so she starts telling her parents that the two teachers are lesbians as, like, a rumor to try and get, like, the teacher she doesn't like fired. And it's this whole thing where, like, just because of rumors, their reputations are destroyed. It's one of those kinds of stories. Okay. Um, except the, the thing about it is one of the teachers, like, she's the younger one. She has, like, a, like, a fiancé, and this is going to, like, ruin her whole life, and her fiancé is even, like, a little, like, side-eyeing her or whatever. The other teacher, who's a little bit older actually is a lesbian and the kid just like happened to come up with the right rumor um but they just aren't actually together which is what the rumor is and revere uh, originated the role of the actually lesbian teacher in whose character name i can't remember off the top of my head in the children's hour that was the big thing when i looked her up again that stood out okay that's really cool yeah so Anne revere's in this and she's awesome yes um I'm totally with you about wishing we had been able to see a bit more of whether backstory or delving into her character a mm -hmm. bit more of Mrs. Walters. But I think part of the reason why we don't is because of the code. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, like, that's, like, the easy, like, cop-out thing. There's nothing interesting in this movie because of the code, see? But, like, I think the code-limited agency on the part of Mrs. Walters, as well as Anne? Well, yeah, I, I have my own complaints about Anne as a character, for sure. Because you're totally right about why Mrs. Walters is allowed to be bad, because she's the bad influence. But, like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like if the code hadn't been in place, or if this was a post-code movie... Um, Mrs. Walters, we would have been able to see a bit more of her manipulation or obsessive behavior, um, a little bit more, like, agency, basically. I think sometimes the other thing with movies like this is every once in a while you get a character like this that's been so elevated by the performance, because so much of what I like about Mrs. Walters is coming from Anne Revere's performance, and I, mm -hmm. I don't know if she actually, like... We're, like, thinking, like, the code went in and was like, you can't have this character be interesting. But who knows? She might have just been totally boring on the page and That's just true. has a lot of depth being added to her because a good actress is performing her. Because at the end of the day, she's just a plot device. She's just here to explain how we get Blair from point A to point B, in a, in, you know, in a way. And she's kind of a lazy plot device because it's, oh, he was corrupted by a woman. Like... You know, there's a way of looking at her character where she's just a very reductionist, simplistic stereotype. Eve. Yeah, she's just Eve. She's just Eve. Just the oldest female character we got. But Anne Revere brings a lot to her in the performance, which makes you believe that there are hidden depths and more mm -hmm. going on with her. And then because her performance makes you believe that, you want to then see those hidden depths. And it's the same sort of thing that happens a lot with, you know, it's... Uh, on TV, they call it a breakout character, right? Where you have the character no one expected to be interesting, and then a performer just comes in and makes them interesting. Spike and Juicilla. Sure. Um, um, Spock yeah. on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point, especially with the way that she dies, because it just, like, happens. Yep. Because Anne's back in the story, so you don't need this lady. Yeah, and, like, I mean, the only thing that kind of plays against this theory is that Mrs. Walters is the only thing that makes the title make sense. Yeah. Because who else is the devil commanding people? Well, uh, apparently the working title was The Devil Says No. That makes less sense. <laughs> unless like... unless it's like Karloff being like, give me give me my wife back, please. And the devil says, no. <laughs> like, I don't know. The devil looks down and whispers, no. But, like, I think it's like, maybe if the experiment failed. Because right when, like, mm. Blair's, like, just getting, like, finally, like, actually making progress, he gets sucked into the portal, right? So yes. the devil's like, yeah, no, come in. Um, I did like in that final sort of experiment when, um, he's finally hearing Helen's voice, there was a lot of good audio effects on the voice to make it sound super, like, otherworldly. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. It started out like a growl. Yeah. I don't know. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I really wanted there to be some kind of, like, supernatural hand or, like, voice or wanted like, the devil pretending to be Helen. Yeah, I wanted, like, a little bit more at the end. We don't actually see him get sucked into the vortex. Like, that happens off screen. Honestly, the climax is a little anticlimactic. But, like, because the visual of, like, the vortex is really cool, but you kind of want it to go to the next level. level. And I suppose that's, like, part of that is this is just a B-movie from the 40s, and part of that is, like, stuff with that, you know, with the vortex and the voices, it feels prescient of like if you think of supernatural ghost stuff in movies from like the 80s like poltergeist or ghostbusters mm-hmm. or whatever right you kind of want it to get to that but like it's not it going can't. to this it's movie from the 40s and also like had no like this had the same budget as all those other you know karloff columbia movies we've seen yeah so you wanted to talk about Anne. What I liked is, like, she has more stuff to do than just fucking Richard, who's just a remnant of the novel. Yeah, from the way you explained the novel, it sounded like Richard was the main character, or at least the, like, POV character. Yeah, he is. So, Anne and Richard in the movie, to me, both kind of feel like, sort of what I mentioned when we watched Before I Hang they both kind of feel tacked on and vestigial. Like, Anne has a little bit more to do because he needs her for the experiments, but that's really there so that they can put a young woman in danger at the climax. And then Richard's just there because the young woman has to have a boyfriend, I guess. I guess. A lot of her existence in the film comes from this voiceover narration. And after we finished watching this, Ben turned to me and was like, hey, Sarah, have you ever seen Rebecca? Yeah. And I was like, no. And so Rebecca won Best Picture or something? In 19, yeah, in 1940. In yeah. 1940. And it has, it A, it starts with, you see a miniature house on like a spooky hill or whatever, and a woman's voiceover. And that, like this film starts in a similar way. There's, I feel like, different moods being set from what I saw of... Rebecca, because I haven't seen it, except for the, like, five minutes Ben showed me. But this film is definitely ripping off that voiceover. But what I like... So, okay, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that Anne is definitely vestigial, but with the addition of this voiceover, she adds kind of an interesting element to the film, especially because her narration ends with this perhaps, 
and I feel like she's trying to bring in a little bit of like maybe she's continuing the experiments like perhaps maybe this is possible and like reflecting on this has made it go maybe I can continue my parents work see I don't want to like take anything away from you but I feel like this is grasping at straws I think you're getting excited about things that I don't want to say aren't there but aren't there for there's no intent the the intent that you want isn't behind them. Yeah, what what I'm saying is not that that's the film's intent. I'm saying that it has this neat side effect of this shoehorned in narration and this like rather vestigial character otherwise like like it feels like Anne's agency because the narration is set up to be in the future reflecting backward. It feels like her agency is more in that time frame, not this backstory that we're seeing. I'm not saying that that's the film's intent. I am 100% headcanoning. Canoning? <laughs> Fanficking? Whatever. Um, so I'm just trying to clarify what I meant when I was bringing up this neat side effect of them doing this. Yeah, I, I just, I don't want to be giving the movie credit for something that I think is happening within your interpretation of it. And I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, you getting excited about you know, reading it, that into the movie, I just I just don't want people coming away from being like, oh, yeah, the devil commands. Like, what a great, you know, depiction of a lady scientist. And it's like, wait, what? No. I think if you didn't have the narration, there's nothing to Anne. Without the narration, she's basically a sheet of cardboard. Like, she, in terms of what's actually on screen, in terms of what she says and what she gives off for personality, there's just nothing. The narration gives her depth but for me it's an illusion of depth because the narration feels so tacked on as a way to rip off like another more popular film and it wouldn't be the first time that Dimitrik ripped off Hitchcock it's something he did later in his career multiple times and the other thing that bugs me about the narration is it doesn't make sense um, it, it bothered me throughout because Anne is narrating the movie, and I feel like the reason why it's Anne, other than the fact that, like, it needs to be someone who's alive at the end of the story, is so that we're reminded of Rebecca. So it's this young woman narrating the past. Um, because otherwise, she's literally not present for the vast majority of the story. And, like, structurally speaking, that's really... Odd. A nonsense choice to have as, like, a narrator. The perhaps thing at the end of the movie, I find it really fascinating that you you were able to kind of get something cool out of that because I sort of was sitting there with that, and to me it was like the audio equivalent of those movies that end with, like, the words the end coming up and then, like, a big question mark appearing where it just felt a little corny to me. Okay. Um... I don't, I, I'm interested in figuring out, like, what it speaks to that, like, we have this equation of kind of nothing character plus tacked on voiceover plus, like, kind of corny ending, but for you it equaled a really interesting possibility and a really interesting avenue of exploration. And I, I just think it's always funny when, like, things that, you know shouldn't add up, add up for, you know, things sure. like that. Yeah. 
Um, speaking of stealing from movies, I, I feel like this movie has a lot of Frankenstein parallels. Oh, inadvertently, yeah. Uh, inadvertently, because they're steal. Okay, so we got, like, mad scientist and <laughs> an assistant who is, like, bumbling. Uh, like a like, dim-witted kind dim-witted of... A dim-witted person helping out with the lab. Who's kind of got, like, super strength for no reason. Yeah, I don't know why Carl... Maybe, I don't know. Because it's the trope. Yeah, exactly. Um, they they st- we don't see it, but um, they're stealing dead bodies to uh-huh. use in the experiments. The doctor, as is what's supposed to happen in the Frankenstein film, uh, the doctor is destroyed at the end. <laughs> but like it by just, a torch wielding mob from the village. Uh, yeah, like I just thought it was like, oh, cool. Now uh, now Karloff gets to be the doctor. Yeah, I I totally had the exact same reaction like what you're seeing a lot of in this movie and the thing that to me made it interesting as a movie is the way that it mixes old and new because you have that origin prologue sequence that sort of sets up why Karloff's doing what he's doing before he goes into the old dark house and I think that sequence is handled much better than it was in a lot of the previous Karloff mad scientist movies where either it went on too long, or was like an awkward flashback, or whatever. Whereas um, here, it feels like it doesn't take longer than it should. It feels more well integrated into the story. Um, but you're totally right that like the eventual setup with the scientist and his lab assistant in this big old house at the edge of town, you know, and the torch wielding mob at the end and everything. It's very gothic and old fashioned, but the movie itself, because of um, that narration that it's taking from Rebecca, and also the, like, cinematography style that it has, that gives it this kind of, like, noir feeling. So you have, like, this gothic style and this 19... And also the fact that I guess it's just... It's set in the 40s, right? Yeah. So it, it you have this modern and this traditional kind of mixing to create, like, a new flavor. Yeah, and it's a good flavor. Like, it's not quite like, mmm, chocolate. <laughs> but it's kind of like, like, like mint chocolate, where you're like, this is good, but like, it's a little weird. You know, like mint chocolate is always like a little, little weird. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because it's like a ripoff with ambition. Mm. Or like, just a movie that decided... I don't know, to just rip off from better sources. Like, <laughs> a, like a lot of the B-movies that we've been seeing are kind of guilty of being rip-offs in one way or another. But, like, gosh, like, you know, if you're going to rip off something, ripping off Frankenstein and Rebecca, like, that, those are pretty good movies to rip off, right? Yeah. Rather than these movies that have been like, well, we're going to rip off, like, The Cat and the Canary... And like the monster walks or whatever, and you're like, listen, can you can you not? Yeah. So where would you like to rank? So I'm looking for the Devil Commands at a range of number twenty to number thirty. Sweet. I was looking twenty-two to thirty. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I wanted to give a little bit of wiggle room that maybe this was better than. The Man They Could Not Hang, or The Man Who Changed His Mind. I don't think it is better than The Man Who Changed His Mind. I wanted to give a little bit of wiggle room for it, though. The Man Who They Could Not Hang, 
this might be better than that. Um, yeah, I remember how much fun it was, like, with all those people trapped in. Like, the clue feels of that. But the problem was that was, like, the last ten minutes of the movie, right? We didn't get as much of that as we wanted to. But we did get Karloff murdering people. Like, he murdered some people. Yes. It just, it, like, you know, a little bit earlier I was talking about how I thought the origin sequence in this movie was paced well. The man they could not hang, it was not. It took way too long to get to the good stuff. So that's why I thought, maybe. I didn't know how to rank it above the ghoul, but I was like, this has to be better than the, than the ghoul. <laughs> um, and I would not put it below... The Man with Nine Lives. Yeah, I, I thought this was better than The Man with Nine Lives, for sure. Yeah. That was, um, listeners... The Frozen one? Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say, like, listeners, if you're having a hard time remembering which of these is which fucking movie. Um, it's the one with the deep freezer. But I thought that, you know, there was also a possibility that maybe The Black Room was better, or maybe House of Usher was better, or maybe... You know what I mean? Like, I, I thought maybe there was possibility there. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm having a hard time. I think if we were to just look at these, like, Karloff as mad scientist, I would definitely put this above the man they could not hang. Yeah, that's that's what my gut tells me. Yeah. I think, um, like, the Black Room's really fucking good. That's also a Karloff flick. So. It's also a Karloff Columbia flick. Oh, hey. Um, okay, so just comparing those two. The Black Room, was that a B or was that an A picture in terms of budget? Um, it was like a period piece, so it had to have had like an A budget, because it was all the like castles and like costumes and right. things like that. I mean, as A picture as Columbia yeah, gets, because yeah. Columbia is kind of a cheaper studio. But it was more like, how is the studio approaching this? Mm -hmm. You know what? I think I would put this above it, because I think it managed to do more with a smaller budget. Yes, I think this movie is very much a great example of doing... A lot with what it had. Like, the fact that we're talking about it in comparison to movies like Rebecca or Frankenstein. To clarify, it's not as good as those movies, but but it's reaching for something, you know? Yeah. It's got ambition. It's the Icarus yes. of, of horror movies right. thus far. Cool. Let's, let's put it um, at 21, then. The okay. Man They Could Not Hang. Going in at number 21, The Devil Commands, from 1941, directed by Edward Dimitrik. What's nice with this is uh, we have the man, blah, 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 <laughs> between 20 and 21 now separated yes. by something. Yes, we've, we've broken that up, although it's still a four-movie block of Boris Karloff movies. Listen, the, the guy makes good horror movies, you know? Like, you can't, can't blame a guy for being good at his job. Sure. If you would like to see this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to the other episodes we've kind of referenced today, as well as an appeals box if you would like to contest the ranking of this film or any other film, even on our miscellaneous not applicable list. You can drop us a line there. Uh, if Tumblr isn't someplace you want to be, you can email screamscenepodcast at gmail.com and uh, we're happy to chat over that way, or on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on any of those services, or wherever you get the podcast. Those sorts of things help others find the show. It's the Halloween season, 
So sharing the show far and wide, whether that be on social media or through word of mouth, is really appreciated at this crucial spooky time when our niche becomes mainstream. <laughs> and this is a good film to, th to show to people. It's not as, like, spoopy, perfect, though, on a, during a Halloween party as Devil Bat, but it's a fun time, I think, if you want to see some spooks and scares. And it's, you know, it's five bucks to rent it on YouTube, um, so it's easily found. The other way you can help support the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. There, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher levels, such as $5, receive access to weekly bonus audio cut from previous episodes, and $10 level patrons get monthly horror short stories uh, that I have written. Also, throughout the month of October, patrons at all levels are going to be getting access to brand new, exclusive, spooky Halloween music. Uh, composed by um, me, chart-topping electronic music artist Stegoceras. Yes, a.k.a. Sarah. <laughs> uh, so be sure to head over to patreon.com slash podcast for all of that good, good stuff. What are we watching next week, Ben? So next week, Sarah, we are traveling back in time. More than we normally do. I should, I guess, be clear. Okay, yeah. Because um, we're going back to 1934. Oh. You might remember that we watched a movie called La Llorona. Yeah, from Mexico. In that episode, I talked about how that movie set off like a trend of Mexican horror movies, and then we never watched another Mexican horror movie ever again. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's because it's been a hard, hard time for me to find these movies. Sure. Um, but next week we're going to be watching what is generally considered to be like the masterpiece of this era of Mexican horror, uh, which is to say the 1930s. It's El Fantasma del Convento from 1934. Okay, so this is going to be like an episode number B. Yeah, title. an insert episode, for sure. Sweet. Okay, well, uh, I'm looking forward to it, because La Llorona, while it wasn't the best, it was very interesting. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we're going to get something similar here, so I'm certainly excited. Cool. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.